Hello, you're listening to Unsettling Trends. My name is Danielle DeVoe. This week, we're going back into the archives to dig up some conversations that I've had over the years about science communication. We're going to start off with an interview that I conducted with Devin Moriarty, a rhetorical scholar from the University of Waterloo. In this conversation, we talk about rhetoric and the politics of science and scientific methods. Now, we sat down to chat right at the beginning of the pandemic when people were really anxious and frustrated and there was a lot of conflicting advice. And so... And so Devin really shed some light on how we can think about science communication and the role that rhetoric plays in how we receive and experience that information. In the second half of the show, I'm going to rebroadcast an interview that my colleague, Dr. Heather Love, conducted with another of my colleagues, Dr. Ashley Mellenbacher. Now, Dr. Mellenbacher is a Canada Research Chair in Science, Health, and Technology Communication. And at the time of this interview, she had just published her book, Science Communication Online, Engaging Experts and Publics on the Internet. And so as I was talking to uh, Devin Moriarty, I, I kept thinking back to this interview because it really does provide some interesting frameworks for understanding how we can better communicate online and how we can address issues like polarization, especially in topics related to science, which over the past couple of years we have seen uh, as being quite contentious. I felt that polarization around science online was a great uh, unsettling trend to take a look at, and that's our topic for today. Enjoy. Hello, you're listening to Midtown Radio. My name is Danielle DeVoe, and today I'm chatting with Devin Moriarty, a rhetorical scholar at the University of Waterloo. Devin, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So your research topic is very timely. You study things like vaccine hesitancy and science skepticism. And I'm wondering to start off, if you could tell us a little bit more about how the study of rhetoric can help us really understand these issues. You know, rhetorical devices, it's not just about debates. There's something else going on here that can help us explain current issues and and sort of current crises in science. Yeah, absolutely. So at its most basic, we know that rhetorical studies are concerned with the power of persuasion. What not everyone may know is that it really emerged as a discipline back in the ancient Greek demos when democracy was emerging as well. So it's also very deeply tied to political concerns as well. When we think about science, even though people like to think that it's completely empirical and it's just scientists who are shining a light on these facts about our world, it's not actually. Science is very political as we see in the current political climate right now with anti-vaccine sentiments and especially now even more kind of amped up in the age of COVID-19. What can rhetoric, which is deeply political and concerned with persuasion, tell us or help us to address these kind of scientific controversies in our publics? Well, one thing that it can help us do is make room for persuasion in the first place. So when you have, let's say, vaccine policies that mandate that you have to vaccinate your children, that actually really shuts down opportunities for discussion. And what also happens is that you get a lot more polarization. There's less space to even come 
together and deliberate and hear each other's concerns about vaccination. And so what also ends up happening is that pro-vaccine people say, oh, just trust the science. And, you know, here's more facts based on scientific consensus that I'm going to just shove down your throat. And that should be persuasive. But we know that it actually isn't. And we also know that anti-vaccine individuals aren't so much concerned with scientific, the processes affiliated with science. It's not that they don't believe science. It's that they're very critical about the kind of corporate and governmental concerns that are enmeshed with the science, right? If we shut down opportunities for discussion and appear dogmatic or authoritarian, then we don't have the opportunity to persuade those individuals at all. What we really need to think about rhetoric is opening up deliberative possibilities. And that means, you know, coming into conversations and being patient with one another and actually engaging in conversations and engaging with the concerns that people are actually articulating, not assuming that you know what the other side's concerns even are. Yeah. And that really speaks to something. I always feel conflicted because I very much believe in the value of vaccines and the importance of vaccines. And I'm very frustrated with anti-vaccine discourse, but I also from a feminist theory perspective, know that medicine has all kinds of problematic histories that haven't always created the best science and the best scientific deployed the most deploy anything that you could call a neutral scientific method. And so, you know, I understand critiques of science and medicine while at the same time, this area being very frustrated by some of those critiques because I don't believe their discourse. And I think the issue of language is an interesting one to me because some anti-vaccine discourses also have learned and imitate the genre codes of science. Once a, a sort of a communication method has genre codes in place, as long as you know how to imitate those codes, you can make something sound equally as authoritative. And so people who are anti-vaccine talk about the peer review research behind their perspective. And so I'm wondering how in our daily life, and maybe this has to do with the way social media creates the impression of discourse and discussion when in reality, discussion isn't really happening. It's still echo chambers. So how do we kind of deal with those language challenges in terms of communicating about this issue? So yeah, there's a little bit of these mimetic possibilities that are happening when misinformation is circulated on the web. And yes, as you're saying, it's mimicking these kind of genre codes. So here, I'll give you an example. And this was during the kind of beginning of the COVID crisis. And someone tweeted who had a verified check on Twitter that they're a scientist and hand sanitizer doesn't work to kill the COVID vaccine because it's only antibacterial and COVID-19 is a virus, so it doesn't work. And this was retweeted a ton of times. It went viral. And then it wasn't really corrected for a few days. And many scientists had to come to the fore and say, you know, this is actually misinformation. Hand sanitizer is absolutely effective when you can't wash your hands. Please make sure that you're using hand sanitizer to help protect you from this. So you can see even just having endorsement on social media in the form of retweets and likes gives credibility to claims that are being made, whether or not they are true or not. There are new possibilities about how people accrue kind of credibility in our digital ecology today, even complicating how genre codes are articulated. 
One thing that it comes down to is this relationship between expertise and ethos, right? So the problem with expertise is that we have a very difficult time as members of the general public being able to assess it. Because we are not scientific experts, we're unable to, you know, watch another scientist in a lab coat and determine whether they are an expert on vaccines or the creation of vaccines and knowing what's going on with the serums and whatnot, right? And how these vaccines are delivered and all that. Uh, we're not able to say, oh, they're definitely an expert. They know exactly what they are doing, right? So what we rely on instead is appeals to ethos in the public sphere, that they're able to demonstrate that they have like goodwill towards the audience, that they are trustworthy, and that they have practical wisdom that stems from experience. Those things can be very harder to fake, right? One thing that uh, the internet also gives us is opportunities to interrogate someone's ethos as well. But as you say, the problem is when you're in filter bubbles and echo chambers. So if you're in those kind of places, it's unlikely that you're going to be interrogating the ethos of a scientist who's saying vaccines aren't safe, right? You're just like, yes, this reinforces my belief. Absolutely. Now I have more evidence from this scientist in order to support what I'm saying. So that's why I actually focus on a site called Reddit, which offers more opportunities to interrogate the ethos of practitioners. So our, our science, for example, has like ask me anything panels where you can engage with scientific experts. So it is very normal to interrogate. How can you prove to me this science or how can you, you know, bring this science down to my level or what have you and have actual real conversations and probe them a little bit more. I'd like to cycle back to this concept of ethos, because I think in our particular climate, we're seeing a lot of conflicting discourses. And when I think about Dr. Teresa Tam early in the COVID crisis, recommending against mask wearing, and at the time, Canada happened to not really have enough masks to go around for our frontline workers. And then once we had enough masks for our frontline workers, the discourse changed to everyone should be wearing a mask. And as a member of the public, it really felt like maybe there was a political reason that we were being told don't wear a mask. And it had to do with supply issues and not the best medical advice available. Um, and likewise, in Ontario with Dr. David Williams, there are often times where the advice that he is publicly providing as part of his political role in relation to the government conflicts with the advice that other medical professionals are putting out. So right now we're seeing medical professionals publicly disagreeing and in a very politicized arena with very politicized issues. And so what can we really learn from this experience of the amount of public discourse that has happened around COVID? You know, it's the news, it's the 24-7 news. We're always hearing more things. People are talking about it constantly. What can governments and scientists really take away from the impact that some of those discourses and the way they've conflicted and the way they've been politicized have had on people's attitudes towards the science and, and public willingness to either believe or not believe in the quote-unquote best medical knowledge available. Yeah, well, I think that one thing that it does really demonstrate is that, you know, um, if one of the anti-vaccination concerns is that the government is somehow conspiring to have everyone va be vaccinated, but it's against the best interest, they're not very good at 
publicly coordinating and being on the same page. That there's even dissent between medical professionals and government officials that are communicating with the public actually just kind of illustrates some of the deliberations that go on within the scientific community anyways, right? It's just making them a little bit more public. You know, to return to the question of ethos, and especially with Dr. Teresa Tam, there's these different kind of balances of ethos as well. Like, so you're trying to balance this ethos of care with this kind of expertise as well. But yeah, you're trying to balance an ethos of care while still serving the general public as well. Like you want them to be safe, um, but you also need to protect the people who are most vulnerable as well, right? So then when you see that there's changing advice, It doesn't mean that the science has changed. It means that we should actually be trusting the practical wisdom of these public health professionals, right? So a lot of them have worked in epidemiology. You think of someone like Bonnie Henry, who was very instrumental in terms of back in the SARS outbreak as well. These public health professionals actually do have experience working with these very complicated issues that bring together not only science, but public and political interests. With political actors, they don't always have the expertise in that kind of ethos. So their practical wisdom is a political practical wisdom. At their very core, they are absolutely rhetoricians who are trying to reassure the public, right? When they lack the kind of expertise and are only deferring to or say that they're deferring to scientists, there can always be a few challenges and they may not get it right. Or they may be trying to serve the interests of their populace rather than serving the interests of the experts, right? So you see, especially in Ontario, Ford really trying to put businesses first, but then also recognizing that hospitals are getting overwhelmed. Um, There's increasing loss of life from the pandemic. So how do you balance these concerns? So it's very challenging and that there's dissent doesn't mean like, oh, science is shot. Um, It just means that health communication is complicated. The politics of a pandemic are very complicated. And there's not always one right answer on how to approach things. So we see things like trial and error um, with the pandemic. So when we implement particular policies and our numbers of the cases of COVID-19 increase or decrease, we see that, okay, some things work and some things don't, right? But we can't always just attribute that to particular rhetoric in the public sphere. Um, that's kind of the material rhetoric. So bodies actually moving, bodies actually staying home. But then it's very interesting that ethos or rhetoric can bring into effect changes in the material rhetoric as well. I think it's an interesting time in science because to a certain extent, science made its own bed in this issue by being immovable, by having hubris, by scientists saying, look, we have expertise, we are correct, stop questioning us about the efficacy of X, Y, and Z scientific intervention, because you don't know what you're talking about and we do. And so people resisted that discourse. And now we have a situation where that resistance is going beyond questioning the rhetorical turns that science and medicine are making. And it's more positing a different worldview and a different truth around 
science and medicine and vaccine safety. You know, on the one hand, scientists had this coming. Um, the way that science and the scientific method set itself up as being objective and truth-seeking. So as educators, what's kind of the next steps in terms of helping doctors um, and scientists actually communicate in a way that isn't so grounded in capital T truths and please don't ask me any follow-up questions. Yeah, that's a, a great point. Yeah, one of the challenges with science communication is that we're hearing about science by proxy, let's say through science journalism or our politicians, they're telling us what the experts have to say. And a lot of times, yes, too. Scientists, when they are talking about their science within their disciplines or within scientific journals, they have particular ways of communicating that they think will be persuasive in the public sphere as well, right? That's not actually the case because when you're doing science within the technical sphere itself, you can afford to some degree to be a little bit apolitical. But when you move that into the public sphere, to be apolitical is impossible, right? It becomes at its core a political issue. What ends up happening sometimes and it's really hard is that their partisan politics starts to get enmeshed with the science when they're moving. So, you know, oh, well, science supports this particular policy. And it just happens that you see it really lining up with kind of left-leaning liberal political values, right? And it's frustrating, but it also requires a whole lot of patience. And I know that this can be very difficult in a polarized political climate where we feel like we're running on a ticking clock, right, in terms of things like climate change, in terms of things like, you know, curbing this pandemic. And it's like, no, we just need to, like, make the change now. But actually, good science communication requires a lot of patience and a lot of consistency and a lot of discussion and deliberation um, and being open-minded and having some sort of, you know, meeting of the minds uh, with people who may appear at first glance anti-science. And I feel like this is one of the things that is becoming very difficult in the age of social media when we're getting lost in those filter bubbles um, and echo chambers is that it's shutting down those opportunities for persuasion. That is the first step. There's so many more steps that come after that, but the first is to even be willing to engage in those deliberations and not just repeating the scientific method and what's considered legit science. So in your view, is science skepticism an unsettling trend, something that is new, that is, or vaccine hesitancy in particular, is this an unsettling trend? Is this something that we should be worried about, concerned about, or is it just the same as science has been filled? The history of science has had unsettling trends the entire time, and this is how science works. This is how we move through and create new knowledge and create ethical systems around medical knowledge. Where does it stand in the unsettling trend as urgent or negative or productive or useful? Yeah, so I would say that in particular, anti-vaccine sentiments is becoming an unsettling trend. It used to be a more niche thing where you said, oh, just anti-vaxxers, right? But it's coming to the fore and there's broader terms to describe it now, you know, vaccine hesitancy, right? So people who aren't anti-vax, but they're hesitant about vaccines and maybe they want to put their child on a different kind of vaccine schedule than what's recommended. And then maybe they're going to opt out of the flu shot as well. So it's becoming much more mainstream to be a little bit skeptical about vaccines and their efficacy or to question why we need to actually get them. 
what has really compounded though, this though is having um, a global pandemic, right? Um, and so the reason, so this is obviously a big challenge uh, because if uh, we don't get, you know, saturation of um, uh, vaccinated people, right, we're not going to achieve herd immunity against COVID-19. So that is a big problem. It's just bringing to the surface that communication has absolutely failed, that people aren't, that they're becoming more and more receptive to even being vaccine hesitant is a problem, right? So it means that we're doing not a very good job of communicating why it's important or perhaps the safety of it, or that our pharmaceutical industry and academic institutions and government um, institutions are all bound up in really complicated ways that people are critical of and they're not communicating this in terms of transparency, right? So that's one thing that COVID-19 is actually helping us with is it's making these processes more transparent. Like how do you actually negotiate vaccination contracts in terms of securing those vaccinations and delivering them to the public? How are vaccines even created? How do they move from academic labs or pharmaceutical labs? How do they go through testing? How are they disseminated to the public? How is vaccine policy implemented? So it's making this way more transparent, but people also are becoming a lot more skeptical too, because like, why when it takes us normally 10 years to develop a vaccine, could we suddenly do this in less than a year? Um, so it also requires us as rhetorical citizens to be attentive to these concerns. And so we need to become more informed as well so that we as general citizens can support science communication aims as well. Great. So thank you so much for chatting with me today, Devin. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was great. That was my conversation with Devin Moriarty. She is a rhetoric of science scholar at the University of Waterloo. You can find Devin on Twitter at Dev Moriarty, D-E-V-M-O-R-I-A-R-T-Y. For more information about local music and artists, check out at Midtown Radio KW on Twitter and Instagram, or listen live at midtownradio.ca. Thanks for joining us. Well, in that conversation, Devin Moriarty from the University of Waterloo raises some interesting questions about how best to engage publics in communicating about issues on which they might have diverging perspectives. So that brings me back to this interview from the archives. Here, Dr. Heather Love interviews Dr. Ashley Mellenbacher, both from the University of Waterloo, about some of Dr. Mellenbacher's research on science communication, and in particular, how to engage online publics. How do we do that difficult work of translating scientific information in a way that broad publics can understand it, and that isn't going to offend people in the way that we have seen, where, um, you know, if someone is not predisposed to believe the science, simply telling them that they should believe the science, of course, isn't going to work. So what are the rhetorical uh, plays that we can make to try and make some of these online public communications more reasonable and, and, and maybe more productive in terms of uh, furthering human knowledge, furthering science communication, 
And we can start to think about some of the unsettling trends in digital communication that we've seen in terms of polarization and the role that diverging views on science plays in this unsettling trend. Hello, you are listening to Midtown Radio. My name is Heather Love, and I'm an assistant professor at the Department of English Language and Literature at the University of Waterloo. I'm here today talking with Dr. Ashley Rose Mellenbacher. Uh, she just authored a book titled Science Communication Online, Engaging Experts and Publics on the Internet. And she's going to chat with us today about some of the ideas that she's been researching about how online communication is changing the way that people understand science in the world. So tell us a bit about your research, Ashley. Thank you. Um, so my book is about, as the title suggests, how we communicate about science on the internet. So there are a variety of ways that we do this. We use crowdfunding sites, blogs, Twitter, uh, databases to store data that we're going to use later on or for different projects. So in the book, I explore how all of these different ways of communicating online change how we think about science communication and how we're able to do science. Very cool. So probably one of the genres you write about that most people are the most familiar with is Twitter. Uh, and you have some really cool case studies in your book about how different organizations use or people use Twitter to communicate um, about the scientific work they're doing or that their organizations like the National Park Service or NASA um, about what's going on there. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how hashtags and the Twitter world are particularly interesting to you and what you think they're doing? Certainly. There are a number of ways that I've looked at Twitter in terms of communicating science online. Uh, with respect to the Park Service, there was a controversy some years ago about how they were portraying uh, certain political events that had happened in the United States online. So this became a particularly interesting collection of hashtags and interlinked tweets that were talking about these really kind of social conversations by scientists, uh, people interested in science. And essentially, the, the way I looked at it was to try to understand how collectives were able to organize around these hashtags, these sort of communal resources. Mm -hmm. And there are other examples. One of our colleagues, Dr. Amy Morrison, has looked at how scientists use hashtags to critique some of the institutional problems, the systemic problems in science around sexism. So she talks about in an article uh, her analysis of how the distractingly sexy hashtag was used mm -hmm. and how this hashtag essentially allowed a number of female scientists to connect about the kinds of pervasive sexism they had encountered in the lab following comments from Sir Tim Hunt, who had made some mm -hmm. remarks at a, a public lecture about women in the lab. Mm -hmm. So these are the ways that Twitter has afforded different forms of science communication, whether it's more public conversations or social conversations, or even internal to science and the kinds of issues that scientists are perhaps facing. So in this way, it becomes an interesting example of the what I call genres of science communication I'm talking about. And by genres, I mean not science fiction or fantasy, but a more formal kind of professional genre. So something like uh, hashtags we could even in some ways talk about as a genre because they have certain conventions or more formally crowdfunding proposals mm -hmm. or blogs or those sorts of texts that we can identify as common or having common elements. Okay. And it seems to me from 
the parts of your book I've had a chance to look at that you focus a lot on dialogue and conversation as sort of as the the new thing that science communication online is bringing to bear on things. So with Twitter, we can have this exchange back and forth that wasn't there before. Um, is that the most important thing in what you found in your research that this new possibility for interactive conversational communication is what's changing things the most? Or are there other things that you would say are more important than that? Well, I suppose that depends where we're evaluating what's important. I think what's maybe most compelling to folks is that these new modes of communication allow for different people to become involved in the conversations about science. So when we see scientists communicating with publics on Twitter, publics can communicate back, which is much more interesting in some ways than traditional popularizations. It also allows scientists to communicate with each other in different ways. So I think that um, ability to communicate across more diverse audiences is perhaps the most interesting broadly in terms of what, what these genres offer. Uh, we're talking about science communication online, um, and I have a question for you about the benefits and the downfalls of communication online. And some context here is that my own research looks at how people a hundred years ago were also grappling with the ways that technology could be a double-edged sword. Um, and it always seems to be wrapped up in this dual idea of sort of the thrill and the threat. Uh, so in the early 20th century, things like widespread distribution of radio and film and newspapers meant that people had access to a lot more information than ever, but it also meant that they were faced with things like disorientation and information overload a lot more frequently. And the same type of dynamic seems to maybe be present in some of the online forums that you're talking about in your research. Uh, so we were talking uh, a moment ago about hashtags and Twitter and how this can build communities to help critique uh, organizations or sort of problematic things going on in society. But in your book, you also talk about how a venue like Twitter can also reinforce things like information bubbles. So we get these maybe feedback loops of more dangerous uh, proliferation of information. So can you tell us a bit about the that dynamic between the benefits of this new uh, form of online communication available, but also some of the maybe dangers or things we need to watch out for? Certainly. It's an interesting thread of conversation that really in some ways dates back at least, I would say, until the 16th century, where we see these fears about the proliferation of information and how we're possibly going to manage all of the information that comes at us in a day. I think we're seeing a very similar kind of problem today, but maybe at a, a, a greater scale rather than entirely different in nature. Online, of course, there is a good deal of discussion about how we're able to create these sort of what are sometimes talked about as filter bubbles, but, but really sort of spaces or echo chambers, we might say, that reinforce what we already think or believe. And I think that's a real fear that folks have that is quite legitimate. In terms of science communication online, it's an interesting space because you can see that on both sides. So you have scientists talking to other scientists, maybe a little bit more publics, which might help actually break some of those echo chambers, right? And, and perhaps have scientists understand more of the concerns that publics might have, for example. But on the other hand, you have publics perhaps that aren't engaging those scientists or reaffirming positions that are not supported by science with, uh, we might say, charlatans, right? Or, or sort of those proponents of pseudoscience who have some stake in, 
in that. You can see that with a lot of discourse around health and wellness, right? Somebody's always willing to sell you something that's going to make something better. So I think in those ways, we can see the real dangers of these spaces, but they're not entirely different than what we might have feared before, right? So it really depended where your conversations were before and how much you were already trying to ensure you had a, a wealth of resources for different perspectives. Um, so based on what you have found out and studied and looked at and analyzed, do you say that the balance tips in favor of it being an overall benefit to have these new types of forums where scientists can engage with different publics, different people, and they can respond back? Is this overall a good thing? Or is it something we have to really consider the potential dangers as we start to embrace these new forms? I think it depends. <laughs> so I, I probably won't commit to one position or the other. I think that the important position to take is always being cautious about the kind of information that you're being given. I think that's true for information offline and information online as well. What I think perhaps the online communications we look at broadly and online science communications reminds us is that we have to have some sort of media savvy. We have to have some savvy about the kinds of content we're being given and are people just telling us what we already want to hear and what does that do in terms of uh, letting our guard down for actually being critical of that information. Yeah, because it seems like one of the big changes is the pace at which things happened, or what th which things can happen if it's possible to have a Twitter conversation in almost real time that the entire world can hear, and what you just said a moment ago about being cautious about what comes our way in information online seems a important call to think about slowing down, even though some of these forms maybe invite even more of a speeding up. Absolutely. And I think the temporality of these technologies is what's really interesting. So while we might have this history of being fearful of information overload and, and probably feeling that there were compressions of temporality at those times as well. I think that is the, the way we experience a lot of these technologies and being attentive to what that does to us as human beings who still have to process at the rate we process is a really interesting perspective to take on how we evaluate how we're engaging conversations online. So fascinating. Since the focus of this radio program is about change, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you see the book you've written, Science Communication Online, promoting change in the world. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about the kinds of responses, maybe changes in perspective or changes in behavior that you might hope individual readers uh, would be prompted to do once they encounter these ideas that you present? And I know there's a lot to choose from. It could be scholars or scientists or members of the different various broader publics you talk about. So feel free to take that in any direction you want to go. But what change are you hoping this book is going to promote? Sure. I'm not sure I'm quite that ambitious, but... Um... I suppose one of the ways I think this book could potentially be useful is thinking a little bit about how we communicate complex subjects to various stakeholders. So whether that's the public or other people who might be affected by issues. And one of the examples I talk through of new ways of communicating science and doing science is through citizen science. So I've beyond the book, studied citizen science quite a bit, and this is essentially a way for publics to become involved in scientific projects. I think looking at how that's done and how those projects are communicated, as I do in my book, provides some strategies for thinking about 
really complex subjects in ways that are understandable to a broad audience without doing what scientists fear, right, which is oversimplifying or or not hedging sufficiently that the information no longer means anything in terms of new knowledge. So I think those are some of the strategies I'm hoping to at least share so that we can continue these conversations about how to better communicate across uh, wide range, wide ranges of audiences about complex subjects. Oh, neat. Okay, so then that could involve change both for the scientists and the way that they pitch their projects and pitch their research, as well as the type of people who are able to get involved with the different scientific projects. Absolutely. And in some ways, how citizens or citizen scientists can also think about how scientists communicate and why they communicate in those ways to better assess information and sometimes to even have better conversations about perhaps policy or try to make the changes that they want to while still seriously engaging the technical side of the subject. Uh, We talked a little bit about how some of the ideas you bring up in the book might be useful in classrooms for instructors, but I'm wondering if you can tell us some of your thoughts on science communication online and public communication of science and how this should affect the way that scientists and universities prioritize different types of communication. Thinking about how the peer-reviewed journal article is sort of the gold standard of communication in scientific discourse, Uh, but a lot of the forms you're talking about bring us into that middle zone between that type of peer-reviewed publication and the more explicitly only for the public uh, forms of communication. So what should the status of these blogs, these tweets, these databases be in the academic world, do you think? I think it's an interesting complement to the genres that we already have. I think in terms of the academic systems of evaluation, it depends because some disciplines, and I'm thinking here of the basic sciences or certain forms of, say, pure mathematics, have very different kinds of knowledge dissemination that they're interested in. So, for example, on the way back from Pearson International to Waterloo once, I shared a shuttle with a pure mathematician who explained to me how his work wasn't particularly relevant today, but typically in his field, they would expect their work to become, a researcher would expect their work to become relevant maybe in a hundred years. A physicist told me the same thing once, yes. Right. (laughs) And it might be. The question is, will it? Who knows? But hopefully it will. Exactly. And I think that's what universities are particularly important for, is that kind of research that may not have any immediate application and supporting that and ensuring there are ways that that research can continue to happen, even if perhaps it's not going to be disseminated to the public, is crucial to the entire enterprise. So I think that evaluating that on its own terms is beneficial. I think where there may be social applications or where there may be uh, more immediate, say, material applications of science or social science or the humanities, it certainly makes sense to give credit to those who are doing the kind of public dissemination as well. But I think it really depends on the field and the area of research and what kind of research you're doing. So I don't think it's a... um, Uh, a kind of broad claim we can make about whether it's relevant or not, because it may be relevant, these online forms may be relevant to some areas and not others. Okay, so you're advocating, it sounds like, sort of an expanding of our openness or willing to consider these genres without trying to say that, you know, this should be the new uh, first thing we look at when we're thinking about um, dissemination and communication of science in general. 
Fantastic. Well, can you let our listeners know a little bit more about where and how they can get your book? Because that's one of the most interesting and exciting things about this new project you've published and communicated. Certainly. So my book's been published by the Ohio State University Press. So it's, of course, available through the press and regular retailers. Uh, It's also made available through an open access license, which means it's freely available online. And the Ohio State University Press website has a copy of this that you can download. And I also have a copy linked from my website, which uh, you can find online at a ridiculous address. So if you just Google the title of the book, you should be able to find an online uh, version. So it's just science communication online, engaging experts and publics on the internet. So if we've given you enough of a tantalizing tease of the book. We hope you'll go check it out in more detail online. And thanks very much for joining me here today, Ashley. Thank you. That was an interview that I pulled from the archives. Dr. Heather Love interviewing Dr. Ashley Mellenbacher, both from the University of Waterloo, about Dr. Mellenbacher's book, Science Communication Online, Engaging Experts and Publics on the internet. You also heard an interview that I conducted with Devin Moriarty, also at the University of Waterloo, where she studies rhetorical and political moves in science and science communication. I hope that all of these conversations have given you something to think about in terms of the unsettling trends that we see in communication about science and between competing publics with differing views on science and some of the ways that those have had real disruptive impacts on our daily lives. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to delve into these issues, thinking more about online communication, uh, implications for everyday life and everyday communication, and some of the broader implications of ongoing polarization in our digital communication. Thanks for joining me. Unselling Trends is hosted and produced by myself, Danielle DeVoe, with production assistance from Madison Taylor. Theme music is by Alexander Boudreaux.